0: Kate Quinn is an international best-selling author of World War II stories, like The Alice Network and The Rose Code, but now she's back with her latest, The Diamond Eye, based on a true story of a mother who became a reluctant soldier and found herself in a place where she changed history. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free e-book and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and on Binge Reading Today, Kate talks about the romance at the heart of her World War II story about a lethal female sniper and about having a book overtaken by current events in the Ukraine. And as usual, we've got a free giveaway. Load up with free mystery and crime stories from multiple authors in the Story Origin giveaway this week. Details on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And as you all know now, links to the show can also be found on that website. And don't forget about our exclusive bonus content, like hearing Kate's answers to the five quickfire questions, by becoming a binge reading on Patreon supporter for the cost of less than a cup of coffee a month. Details at patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now here's Kate. Hello there, Kate, and welcome to the show.
1: It's so good to have you with us. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Kate, look, you're a New York Times best-selling author with a string of historical hits to your credit, including The Alice Network and The Rose Code. But the one we're focusing on today is your latest book, The Diamond Eye, about a remarkable woman, the Second World War's most lethal female sniper, and in fact, the most lethal female sniper of all time that we know of. This was another story that's been buried, even though she was has a pretty remarkable claim to fame. Very few people had heard of Mila. So how did you come across the story?
1: Well, it's the classic case of when you were researching one book, uh, your research drops the idea for a new book in your lap unasked for, which is a wonderful thing. And this came about when I was researching one of my last books before it just just before the Rose Code, called the Huntress, which was centering around the Russian female bomber pilots who flew against Hitler's Eastern Front. And when I was researching the Night Witches, I happened to run across all kinds of other stories about other Soviet women war heroines, because the Soviet Union was the only allied nation to involve women officially in combat which none of the others did. So I happened to run across all kinds of women who you know, had incredible stories. And most incredible of all was Lyudmila Pavlichenko, who went from a very ordinary woman indeed to being a war heroine and a star of the front line and even to being a so you know what we would now think of as you know a media sensation in the United States thanks to a goodwill tour in the in 1942 so as soon as i read about this woman i knew i had to write about her it just took another book or two before i was able to realize that this was the time for her story the other
0: thing that we've already mentioned together off-air that was remarkable is that her actual career in terms of active service was quite short because she got injured and then she got sent on that uh, Goodwill tour. Tell us about how many strikes so-called did she have and and where did they occur? What was the front and what was the uh, conflict that she was involved in?
1: Well, she was sent really right at the beginning of the war because she enlisted very quickly as soon as, you know, her nation was invaded. She enlisted fast, she was, you know, shipped out fast and she was involved in first the siege of Odessa and then the siege of Sevastopol for less than 18 months of really fierce, focused, horrendous fighting, which was how she was able to rack up such a high number so quickly. She ended up being wounded something like four or five times. And in spite of all of that, in her brief career at the front lines, she racked up a tally of 309 official kills. And that was, you know, really quite extraordinary. It made her a war heroine in her own country. And it certainly made her an object of, of, you know, fascination when she came abroad to the United States. (laughs)
0: She wasn't, as you say, a particularly amazing woman before the war. She was not your stereotype of the psychopathic killer by any stretch of the imagination, was she?
1: She wasn't. And that was the thing I loved about her, because the more I researched her, the more she became very human and very warm. You know, we have this idea that snipers have to be, you know, these cold-blooded killers, you know, at best, they're militarized serial killers, At worst, you know, or at worst, they're militarized serial killers and at best, they're, you know, the the odd man out on a team of ordinary guys, you know, the one who gives everybody else else the shivers. But, you know, she was quite human. And I loved finding that out about her. You know, she was a single mother. She was a graduate student. She wanted to be historian. She was working on her dissertation at the time when her country was invaded and she left school to enlist. She. I was working as a library researcher at the Odessa Public Library at the time. And I just found that delightfully, wonderfully nerdy, you know, that she was, you know, a woman who we could absolutely imagine having in our book club, a woman we could imagine working with or, you know, checking your book out from at the library. And yet, She had this extraordinary willpower and this extraordinary skill in her, which, you know, when it was tossed into this incredible crucible of war, really turned into a very, very fine steel indeed. She had unusually had training
0: in marksmanship, hadn't she, before the war. So when she picked up a a rifle in in the forces, she already had quite a lot of training with hitting targets.
1: She did. She was... You know, when she was a young mother and working at in a factory and, you know, basically going to night school, trying to get her degree, she'd been a teenage mother. So, you know, she was very much scrambling to get her life back on track. But at, when she was at the factory, she and some of the other factory workers sometimes went after work to the range and, you know, just did a little target shooting for fun and, you know, nothing particularly uh, serious. But she enjoyed that enough that she decided to go in for an advanced course so that she could learn ballistics and proper target shooting and, you know, tables of, you know, multiplication and so forth for learning how to use a scope. And she enjoyed that. And she did the two-year course and she got her advanced marksmanship certificates. And um, you get the feeling she was a woman who really liked her school certificates. She was a great student, clearly. And, you know, so she kept up, you know, her skills there, you know, really just as a hobby on the side. And then by, by the time war broke out, she realized that she could really be of use. And of course, you know, the Maddening thing was that the first place she tried to enlist the man who was, you know, taking charge of the enlistments immediately tried to shuttle her into the nursing or the medical battalions and told her, well, you'll just be a nurse. And here she is waving her advanced marksmanship certificate saying, you know, really, I can do I can be more useful than that. But he just wasn't having any of that. So she stamped out in a rage and then, you know, walked and went, walked off and went and found another recruitment center where they were a little bit more willing to listen to what she had to say and to realize you know, I think we can make better use of you than to stick you in a nursing uniform. Yeah, we mentioned about this mission that she went
0: on to to the USA at this point in the war, the Soviets were actually doing very badly. They were coming up to the siege of Stalingrad, and they were desperate to get the US into the war to get Hitler engaged on the other front. And so they sent this group of people to FDR. Roosevelt was the president, and she had quite a good rapport with Eleanor, his wife. Your publisher's blurb says she changed the course of history forever, and I guess that was because her intervention and particularly her relationship with the Roosevelt probably did help escalate the U.S. entry into the war. Would that be right?
1: I think you can't say that it wouldn't have been a factor in that because we like to think now, you know, the way we're taught history in America, as soon as the attack on Pearl Harbor happened, you know, bam, America's all in. And, you know, of course, at that point, that's the moment the war is won. This is how we're taught history, I'm afraid, in some ways. But there really was an opposition in in some places, very strong opposition to opening that second front in Europe. There was the idea, all right, well, we have to go to war with Japan now, but do we really have to get involved in Europe? And so, you know, the Roosevelt's were trying to, you know, drum up that support for the second front and the the Soviets were desperate for help because, you know, they were getting absolutely pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and they were losing millions uh, to German bullets. And so there was this idea that the, uh, Soviets would send some ex-soldiers and ex-students over to join the this, Ameri- this uh, international student conference that Eleanor Roosevelt was setting up. And Eleanor really took them under her wing. You know, she made a point of being photographed with them, of hosting them in the White House, you know, as some of the first overnight Soviet guests that the White House had. She was the one who really spearheaded, you know, the Goodwill tour afterward that ended up happening and being sort of a, a chaperone and a partner for Lyudmila when she went around the country speaking to people about you know the need to fight hitler and you know, unexpectedly you would think that you know you would think that someone like Ludmilla would not be, you know, a social media darling, the way they would put it today. But you know, she was tremendously popular. She was a good speaker, she was charismatic, and she had this, you know, friendship that was blossoming with Eleanor, who certainly was, you know, encouraging her to take her place in the spotlight. So I do think it's one of those things, it may have been, you know, a small tipping point, but perhaps. A rather important one, you know, who who can value what moment is the moment when something finally tips over from this might happen to this is going to happen. But it is very true that after the opposition to the second front in Europe was something that started to really wither.
0: Yeah, yeah. You capture the surroundings of those months when she was at the front amazingly, what the uh, climatic conditions were like, the the incredible cold, and also there's a very touching aspect where she's desperately trying to keep in touch with her son and she sends him leaves because he's doing some botanical um, project for school. Um, You make it very real, Did you have journals or something that you could use, or did you go to the Ukraine yourself? How
1: did you do that
0: research?
1: I would have loved to go to the Ukraine and to, you know, go to Odessa and Sevastopol, but uh, unfortunately this was written at the end of 2020, in the beginning of 2021, long before I was uh, vaccinated or the vaccines were available, and there just was no travel happening whatsoever. So I had to make do with Google Earth and uh, Google Maps and all kinds of research as far as historic photographs, vintage photos, and fortunately, the most useful thing at all was the fact that Lamila Pavlichenko wrote her memoirs later in life. And she really is very descriptive of her time at the front what it was like from the smallest details of what kinds of plants there were around her, which is what gave me the idea that I think she learned that particularly because she said that she was a city girl. She was not a country girl who knew all of her plant names, but she really knew all the names of the trees and the things. And it made me wonder if, I wonder if she was learning that for a particular purpose, because I do know that she missed her son dreadfully. You know, he was only about eight years old and she missed him horribly while she was at the front and knew that there was at least a good, chance she would be killed without ever seeing him again. So her letters to home really became something that was a lifeline for her in, in as she is involved in this horribly tense and bloody work.
0: Yeah, yeah. What was the hardest thing for you in writing this story overall? Was it getting into Ludmilla's head? Was it uh, just getting a grasp on the wide frame of history? What was the hardest thing?
1: The thing that was the most difficult and the thing that concerned me the most was that I wanted my modern day readers to not be put off by the fact that I'm asking them to sympathize with a Soviet woman Who literally has killed more than 300 people. (laughs) I was worried that that was going to be a little bit of a stretch for a reader's sympathy because nowadays in, in the U.S., you know, let's just say that our relationship with Russia is not particularly warm. And it's a little bit harder to drum up sympathy for that and to drum up sympathy for someone who is very much a believer in the Soviet system, because now we know with the hindsight of history, how very misguided that system could be and how many people suffered under it and how many died under Stalin so it's a little bit of a it's a very different world I'm asking them to step into and then there's the fact that you know she did in fact kill so very many people even though you know she was a soldier and it was her job and you know she she was certainly not a murderer but To do that, I ended up really trying to dig into what are the things that are universal about being human and about being female. And those were the things that I thought would help a reader, any reader, really sympathize and empathize with what Mila's experience was. Because there are certain experiences that are universal. She talks about, you know, what it's like to have your period on the front line and the fact that the army has no idea what to do with that and really would rather not know, or the fact that she is continually being boxed in by sex superior officers who are either hitting on her or punishing her because she's rejecting them when they hit on her or who are just continually questioning her expertise. Or there's the fact that she's dealing with an ex-husband who's basically just trying to make her life as difficult as possible, but she has to be nice to him and swallow all this anger just so that she can get things done in her ordinary life. And the fact that she has this perfectionism in the way she approaches her world, that she feels she can't ever make mistakes. And I think that's the kind of thing that most women can empathize with. We have the feeling that we cannot make mistakes or we're just going to tumble off the track and we're not going to be able to get back on it. So these were the things I really leaned into because in, in my efforts to make sure that Mila was a heroine that the reader could like and that the reader could feel all right she's very different from me but I understand how she feels here
0: and also there does come through she is from the Ukraine and I mean ironically we've got this situation that's developed just suddenly in the last weeks even really with the confrontation that's unfolding there I mean when is your books actually being released in March is it? Yes it is. Yeah. So you've got that background goodness knows what's going to happen with the U- Ukraine in the meantime but she makes a comment now and then about how she she allows herself to be referred to as a Russian even though she really identifies more as someone from the Ukraine. That, that's an interesting little distinction isn't it?
1: In her day and this was something I tried to be sensitive with because in you know the modern day of course we would we know that like this these are not countries that are, you know, analogous in the same thing at all. Ukraine is very separate from uh, Russia. But at the time, they were, you know, however unwillingly, part of the same Soviet Union. And so Mila in her day, although she was Ukrainian by birth, she would have considered herself Russian or Soviet by nationality. And this is something she actually makes very plain in her memoir when someone does ask her, are you Ukrainian? And she just says, I am Soviet, I am Russian, you know, and that's something that she believed in her day. So I had to go with that because that is something that she was very definite about in her recollections. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I can address from the modern day standpoint is that I would certainly refer to her as a Ukrainian heroine as, you know, well as someone who was a heroine of the Soviet Union.
0: Sure. Yeah. You've dug into a number of other World War II stories, as we mentioned at the beginning with the Rose Code and the Alice Network, but you mentioned also the hunt which is another Soviet story. What has drawn you to the Soviet stories? Because as far as I know, you're the only popular fiction author who's ventured into this area so far, or that I'm aware of.
1: Well, it's one of those things where I think there are so many World War II stories happening right now, but we want to branch out. This is when you're talking about a world war, you are talking about a war that certainly covered more than France and England in the United States. I want to see more stories set in Canada. I want to see more World War II stories set in Australia or with Australian heroines and heroes. And it's like I would like to see more of the world involved in it than you know, just the popular locations. And what fascinates me, especially about the Soviet Union, is the fact and the Soviet war stories, is the fact that, as I said earlier, they were the only allied nation to put women in the front lines. So in a contrast to when you would have heroines who are American or French or English, you know, these are women whose fighting would have been limited either to being uh, spies or to being partisans or to frontline or frontline support networks or to, you know, life on the home front and not to denigrate any of those uh, any of those jobs because all of them were crucial during the war. But you did not in those countries see women fighter pilots, women bomber pilots. You did not see women snipers, but you saw all of those kinds of women in the Soviet Union. So all of a sudden there's a possibility simply by going into Russian history of being able to tell an entirely different kind of female war story where the women are on the front lines they're driving the tanks they're firing the rifles they are you know flying the fighter pilots the fighter planes and the bomber planes they're doing things that in they were not able to do in any other nation in the same quite the same way so that's one reason i am really fascinated by you know, Soviet women's war stories because they look very different from the women's war stories of almost any other country you investigate.
0: Yeah, yeah. The Rose Code, which was set in Bletchley Park, focused on the presence of a mole in that famously super secret institution and something quite shocking to contemplate. I'm sure at the time they would have been utterly devastated to realize something like that was going on. I wondered how much. The relaxation of the 50-year secret law has had in how much it's helped with the research, and also whether that influenced the information you could find for the Diamond Eye?
1: Well, I'm not sure a 50-year rule is going to stop a lot of secrets from remaining buried in the Soviet Union's history. <laughs> yeah. I think there's still <laughs> a lot. They probably didn't I, have quite the same thing actually, did they? <laughs> I don't think I think there's a lot there that they would still rather did not come out, <laughs> no matter how much time has passed. But I do think, though, that there has been an increase of interest in wartime history, which has led to more translations of you know stuff from that is originally written in Russian. And I'm very grateful for that because, for one thing, uh, Ludmilla Pavlichenko's memoir was, of course, originally written and published in Russian. And as soon as I got the idea of writing about her, I was so incredibly relieved that there had, within, I think, the last five or ten years— been an English translation of it. And I don't know what I would have done with that English translation. It would have been a lot of work to try to, you know, decipher the Russian Cyrillic on her original. And it would not have been nearly as easy to, you know, read her own words in her own voice and get an idea really of what she was like. So I am grateful for the renewed surge of interest in. Uh, war history because I do think that is leading to more translations which certainly makes life easier for someone like me who very regretfully does not speak Russian
0: (laughs) we're taking a short break and we'll be back with Kate Quinn soon If you love historical mysteries, take a look at Jenny Wheeler's of Gold and Blood series set in the colourful California of the 1860s and 70s. Yep, that's me. I've just finished Dangerous Desires, Book 10 in the series. It's in digital bookstores now. It can be read as a standalone, but if you want to start at the beginning of the series, Book 1, Poisoned Legacy, is available for free download on my website jennywheeler.biz that's b i z that's the website for Dangerous Desires book 10 or a free ebook of Poisoned Legacy and now we're back with Kate Quinn at the center of the story of the Diamond Eye there is a, a really a beautiful romance relationship i mean it just shows the heart at the at the beating away at the centre of the story. And it's interesting that in your author's outline at the end, your author's notes, you tease out the actual factual basis for that. There is a factual basis, but it's a bit more complicated than what might come through in the story tell us a bit about your sense of balancing fact with fiction when you write these stories
1: well quite often you know when you have try or when you are trying to figure out how to balance those things you for someone like me i always take the historical fact what we know and use that as the framework and then you layer what is fictional on top of that but it doesn't always mean that you that it's quite as simple as you know well this is fact and this is fiction because Quite often, you know, for a document like Ludmilla's memoirs, it is also a bit of a propaganda document. And there, there are places where the propaganda office, the Soviet Union, had their certain embroideries on the facts. Like there's it's pretty well it's pretty well certain, for instance, that there's a meeting with Stalin in the middle of that memoir that we don't think actually happened because none of the other people who were at that meeting when they wrote their own version mentioned that meeting happened at all. So. We think that was probably a case, I think that was probably a case of the propaganda office, including a uh, mention of the boss just as a bit of a flattery for the past. So that's the kind of thing I'm just going to take the other uh, accounts into account and then you know, try to figure out where do I parse out what the truth is and where do I think m- there might be some embroidery. And then in the other way around in, from embroidery is when you look at the facts and there are gaps. Or there are contradictions in the facts. Like, for example, you do mention Lyudmila's uh, particular romances the man in her life who was the big frontline romance of her war which was very real and it did happen he's sometimes listed as being her lieutenant and he's sometimes listed as being her sniper partner and it's not really clear which one he was I think and I made the choice at least for this particular book I think she may have been involved at different points with two different men one of whom was her lieutenant and one of whom was her sniper partner so therefore I used her version talking about her lieutenant and then I had to flesh out what the relationship with her sniper partner would have been because that wasn't in her memoir. So these are the, th- the kinds of choices that you have to make when you're doing, when you're actually writing. And it sometimes is a matter of, you know, filling in the gaps where history is frustratingly a little incomplete. Sometimes it's choosing what you think is the right course, is the, the correct course when history offers you conflicting versions. And sometimes it is trying to figure out where things may have been a little bit embellished from the record and you have to pare back to the truth it's always a choice being made i am never going to claim that i think my version is the truth i am making my choices based on the book that i want to write and also what i think is the truest according to the story i'm trying to tell but i don't know if that is the truth or not all i can do is guess so I always put the author's note in the end just to make sure that people know this is where i did a little bit of embellishment this is where the record is a little bit different please refer to the original sources yourself if you would like to read the um, words from the horse's mouth and read a little bit more about what how it could
0: have been <laughs> yeah, your early the first books you wrote were actually set in quite a different time and place ancient history or medieval history. Tell us just a weeny bit about the trajectory of your career as an author and were the ones that were published the first books that you actually wrote or did you have a little bit of a training time before you got anything published?
1: Oh, uh, I've been writing books since I was probably about 10 years old. So I have any number of novels, you know, trunk novels under the bed and which are never going to come out. They'll never see the light of day. That's where they belong. So I have a great many books that have never been published long before I got to the ones that finally were. I really did gravitate first my first I did write four books to said in first century Rome and that's a period I gravitate to because my mother had an, not only was a librarian that had a degree in ancient and medieval history so I was you know, getting these stories about the past at a very young age and I loved ancient Rome you know because it had that great juxtaposition for me of you know these tremendous advance in advances in civilization these you know Tremendous feats of engineering and architecture, like the temples being built, the aqueducts, the Colosseum, and yet something as miraculous as the Colosseum was being built for the purpose of mass slaughter for public entertainment. Yes. So there was the idea of this juxtaposition between these advances in art and architecture and engineering and government and philosophy, which were at the same time juxtaposed against a time of extraordinary violence. So that's, that is really what, you know, interested me about ancient Rome. And in a way interested me as well, when I then moved to the Italian Renaissance and did a couple of novels set in that period, because again, it's another time when there's a tremendous flowering of art and science and music and so very many of the arts, yet at the same time, it's an extraordinarily blood-soaked period where there was a great deal of political upheaval. So I think you probably can say that's something that I tend to be fascinated with is when you have an era that's a contradiction, where you have great beauty and advancements on one side, and yet you have, you know, tremendous setbacks and violence on the other, because that inherent contradiction means you have a lot of grist for stories.
0: yeah. Yeah. Moving from your books, you've got so many fantastic books, we could talk about them all day, but um, there's just a perennial question I'd like to jump to, which I ask everyone, and that is, if there's one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other, what would you say is the secret of your success in quotes?
1: I think I would say adaptability. Adaptability is key, I think, if you want to make a career out of writing. Now, there are many other things you also need. You're going to need a healthy dose of luck and you are certainly going to need hard work and a little bit of talent as well if you're going to, you know write books that people want to read and get them written and get them out on time. But I think adaptability is the thing that will give someone, not just me, certainly, but give someone long-term success with any luck because when you were looking not just to write as a hobby for your own joy and for yourself... But to you know put it out there to, so readers can buy it and so that they, when they buy it, are paying your bills at home. When you're looking to make a career of it, you have to keep in mind what the market wants. You have to keep in mind what readers want. And you have to find that Venn diagram overlap between when you were looking for a new book idea of what people want to read and what you want to write that you feel passionate about. Because yeah. if you only write what you want to, what you want to write, but people don't want to buy it, you're not going to pay your bills with that way. And when you only, but when you only write to the market and only write what people want to read, but you, it's not something you love, well, that's not going to come out very well either. So you have to find that Vendor di- diagram overlap, and that does mean some means some changes and some changeability at times, because it means that you need to. Look at the market, look how things have changed, and be able to decide, all right, people aren't buying stories set in Renaissance Italy right now, so how can I pivot? What are they buying? What else are people uh, doing? What else, yeah. and how can I uh, turn into that? Yeah, sure. Look, We are coming to the end of our time together. So turning to
0: Kate's reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and we do like to focus on popular fiction, what are you currently reading? Or some old favourite from the past that you occasionally return to, but what can you suggest to anybody who's listening might be a good escapist popular binge reading book to try?
1: Well, an old old favorites that I love returning to are the wonderful romantic dramas of Eva Ibbotson. I adore them. They're poetically written, they're hilariously funny, and they're wonderfully feel-good all around. For something that is just binge-worthy, fantastic storytelling, uh, the Expanse series by James S.A. Corey, which is just some of the best space opera around there I, I wasn't even a space opera person but I love these books so much and then you know for transportation historically to another world and one that I always love are the Tong Dynasty historical fiction novels of Jenny Chang which I just adore those
0: are all great and they're not books that are so incredibly well known none of them have been suggested by other people so that's fantastic circling around and sort of Finishing a little bit, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything?
1: Oh, goodness, that's a good story. Uh, That's a good question. (laughs) What would I change if I could do it again? I think maybe I would be a little bit stricter with myself at the beginning about not listening to that voice in your head that tells you that you can't do it because in the words of Nora Roberts, I can fix a bad page, but I can't fix a blank page. And as a young, as a new writer, and I see this in other new writers all the time, it is so very possible to get paralyzed by the voice in your head that says, This is terrible. You can't do this. What are you thinking? And then they never write it. They never finish it. And they get stalled by that voice in your head. So what you really need to learn is to get past that voice in your head and just get the words down. Because once they're down, you can make them better. You can always make them better. So I think I would have learned to put that voice in my head to bed a little quicker when I was uh, first starting out and learned to just get the words out so that I could fix them later on. I think it would be very encouraging
0: for people who are at that point at the moment to look at what you've produced now, because it's hard to believe that you would ever have had that kind of internal dialogue.
1: Oh, everybody I know has that kind of internal dialogue at some point. (laughs) I guarantee you. (laughs) So looking at the next 12 months and perhaps just glancing back over the last
0: 12, has COVID affected you very much? And then going forward, what are your next 12 months looking like in terms of your writing life?
1: I'd- uh, again, I don't think there's any writer out there who hasn't been affected by COVID and by the lockdown. In one way, I am very lucky. You know, my I already work from home and my day did not really change very much because of lockdown, except for the fact that I now have to work out in front of YouTube instead of going to the gym. Uh, I still am able to work at home and I still am able to do much of my work without needing to go some, to some sort of office or to some sort of a store or anything like that. And for that, I'm very lucky. Yet on the other hand, I did feel for a long time like I didn't know what I was going to write because it felt like I had about the attention span of a goldfish, for one thing. And it was felt very difficult to refill that creative well or to put any creativity out there in a world that seemed increasingly like it was on fire. But The Diamond Eye really was a great escape for me it was truly a escapist in the every sense of the word because i honestly think it, this is when i began it it was or something around october of uh, 2020 we had been in lockdown for months and months there, the numbers were spiking everywhere there was no end in sight vaccines were not there yet and in the us we had this you know continual you know coverage of the election and then you know, the fallout from that and i honestly think my muse took one look at everything that was going on in the world and just said, I want a break. I want to go somewhere relaxing and, you know, calming. How about the Russian front in World War II? (laughs) Because she... She dove into Mila's world, this horrendous world of the Russian front in World War II with the blood and the mud and the horrors. And she went into that like she was going to a spa day. And she basically didn't look up for three and a half months flat. And it honestly only took me about three and a half months to draft the diamond Eye, just to get that first draft down, which is really very fast, even for me. And I honestly think it's because my um, whatever my creative side was so desperate to escape the world around me at, at that point that the words happened extraordinarily quickly. So that's really how <laughs> the end of 2020 and the lockdown and so forth went for me as far as the writing went. Honestly, this last book became a, a, an escape hatch and one I was very grateful for. That's fabulous. It sounds like you
0: might have channeled Mila a little bit because the thing that comes through in the story about her is her capacity to just focus, drill down and discipline herself. I mean, even with that little project with the leaves, the way you carried across anyway she becomes quite you know clinical in the way that she starts collecting botanical so maybe you sort of kind of took some spirit of Mila on board there
1: I probably did I I did you know really feel quite close to her while I was writing you know I can't say that my version is the real version like the real woman because it's just my version of her as close as I can get but I did come to love my version and she was wonderful to spend time with
0: so what's what are you working on now do you have another book you've going on
1: or you've just given yourself a little break? I do have another book I'm working on actually. Um, It is titled right now, The Briar Club, and it is about Washington DC in the uh, 1950s with the whole McCarthyism and Red Scare era of things. So I'm really diving into that and I'm just loving it right now.
0: So is that The Briar Club, B-I-R-A-R?
1: Yep, that is correct.
0: Great, thank you. Now Kate, I imagine you like to be able to interact with your readers in some form or other and not obviously in person so much at the moment. Where can they find you online?
1: Well, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, It's Kate Quinn, 5975. You can find me on Twitter, Kate Quinn Author. And you can find me on Facebook. I do have a page and that is, again, just Kate Quinn Author. So I tend to post a fair amount, you know, when I'm procrastinating from my word count. So you can find me on one of those places for sure. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking. Oh, it's been absolutely lovely. Thank you. Mm.
0: Next week on Binge Reading, Andy Straker, an award-winning and best-selling mystery author, talking about his new book, Split City, the first in his Jesus Spears series about former pro bowling champions and identical twin brothers trying to make a go of it in a small Midwest town.